You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn Live, and this is Objection to the Rule. It's a new program on Radio Free Brooklyn, bringing new perspective on local, state, and national issues and new voices to the Sunday political chatter. This week, President Trump announced that he's starting the process to withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. Meanwhile, protests around the country call into an investigation into his ties into Russia. And the debate continues on just how far free speech and art can go. Does it include a likeness of the president's severed head? We're joined today by reporter Deanna Anderson, sharing her findings on new development in Flatbush and how the community is staying involved in the process. Stay tuned for our first edition of Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. everyone how's it going hi how are you hi Good. so welcome to our first show this is a new venture for radio free brooklyn i'm ori givens and i am the news and community engagement director here at the station and i'm joined by some wonderful people in the studio let's go around and introduce yourselves hi i'm rachel cleary i'm the um regular host of here and now with rachel c thursdays at seven um and sometime host of brooklyn bandstands that's monday to to through Friday, four to five, and I'm very happy to be here. Hey, I'm Violet Barron. I'm a, a freelance reporter and journalist and uh, the independent producer of podcasts, um, and I'm happy to be here. My name is Deanna Anderson. I am the Next City uh, Equitable Cities Fellow, um, so I report on economic development here in New York, and I'm happy to be here. Awesome, and we are happy to have all of you here. And Diana is gonna talk about some reporting that she's done in the neighborhood of Flatbush and also contribute to our conversations about some of these things that are going on in the news cycle. So you can keep uh, us, you can listen to us and get involved with us online. You can visit us on Facebook. We are at um, Objection Radio Free BK and on Twitter at Objection RFB. You can also email us anytime at objection at radiofreebrooklyn.org. So, Let's just dig into it. So we have the first issue that we are going to talk about are the protests in response to the ongoing look into Trump's connections to Russia. There were nationwide protests, including here in New York at Foley Square, asking for an independent commission to investigate what's going on. So my question to everyone, you know, this is the age of alternative facts, right? We are dealing with an administration that has not really been forthcoming with people that have not really dealt with truth as we know it in the news business. So I'm curious to know, do you, what do you think will come out of an investigation of this administration? Do you think we'll actually get to the bottom of what was going on? I, I That's a very good question because, you know, again, it, in this era, like era of alternative facts, I hate using that phrase, but that's what it's come to be known as. I, I, I suspect that investigators or an investigation may lead to either a, a, a conclusion they may get to the bottom of things but I don't know if there's that and there's the public being informed right. about it I think that's too to and I think that's always been the case you know what 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 they know on the inside and what they allow to be released um, I think a lot of this investigation because it, it could wind up being you know uh, 
kept confidential for, you know, a generation, <laughs> you know, in the interest of national security. I think there's they already know so much. I have a feeling it's going to be a, I think they can get to the bottom of things um, because it, it, Trump has been around a long time. He, he's got a what we in New York, there's this term called he's someone having a lot of OZs, like he owes people. You know, mm-hmm. he's the Mr. Mister. I like to do favors. And I think he has a lot of OZs. Um, people, you know, people have information on him. I, you know, he, he doesn't have a great history in New York City as an employer, as a businessman. We kind of know him to be, you know, someone who's, for example, he has a reputation for hiring people and not paying them in a prompt manner. That's that's the big thing he's known for here. Um, so I, I think there's there are people who are more and more now willing to talk about him, provide information to people, you know, at the federal level might be investigating or even just to journalists. But I, I, I think it might be a long time before we know what comes of any investigation. I wouldn't be surprised if that all got classified really quickly. <laughs> yeah, my thoughts, you know, I... Everybody's making the kind of connections or or trying to make the connections, build a connection between what happened with President Nixon and Watergate and what's happening now. And, you know, it it is, you know, really kind of crazy, out of this world imagining type of situation. I think that there's a lot of differences. But I do wonder if we, you know, considering what we have heard in various different testimony thus far and then going back on testimony and not really being able to nail down exactly what this involvement could have meant. Um, I, I just don't know if it's not just a way to throw money at something and, and not really get anything out of it, you know. But I could be wrong. Does anybody else have another opinion? Um, well, I, I really hope that they continue to investigate, even though it is throwing money at um, things. Um, <laughs> I mean, I feel like I really hope that investigative journalists are able to push it along um, so that we're able to find things out more quickly. It's time to follow all this money. <laughs> yes, Follow all exactly. this money and figure out what what's happening. Right. Um, and it, I think we need to put pressure on the investigation to put it in the open. The public has a right to know and the public needs to know what they're finding as they're finding it or as close as possible to that. Mm-hmm. I don't think we can be, afford to be kept in the dark about that. Absolutely. So James Comey, the former FBI director, you know, was famously terminated by a like carrier pigeon or something. No, he, was, <laughs> he, he found out he was fired. He yeah, was fired he went already. to work not knowing he was fired. He flew across the country to address employees in L.A. and saw that he was fired through a graphic on television. Um, but he was released as he was, you know, investigating these very allegations. So. Why, you know, he is set to testify in a hearing next week. Um, there's been talk of the president probably try, or possibly trying to stop that, but there's no nothing to say that that's going to happen. I'm, I'm curious to know what he's going to say and what effect it will have. Um, any thoughts on that? I, I agree. I'm very curious to hear what he has to say. I think he's very careful with his words. Mm-hmm. And I get the impression he he genuinely cares about the interests of truth and justice and the support he's had from his um, former, now former employees suggests that he was a fair person to work for. He was, you know, I'm curious because I I don't think he's, I think he's going to be, I I think he's going to be careful, very careful and truthful about the way he words things. Um, and I mean, I know I, I, like a lot of people, I was really shocked with what happened during the end of the, you know, 
uh, the end of the uh, presidential race last year with, you know, this last minute, oops, we should let you know about Hillary's server. Right. I mean, I think part of that was, I don't know if that was reporting or it was just the way he presented it. It's kind of like, I mean, we know that there, there was this issue with Anthony Weiner and, you know, his corresponding um, via social media with a minor. Anytime there's that kind of investigation going on, they will go in and they will seize any computer in a home. They just, they go in and they clean house. And because, and, it, and they might have taken his wife's computers and she was Hillary Clinton's aide. So I was kind of, I took a step back and went, yeah, it kind of makes sense given the nature of that kind of investigation. They'll just, they just go in and they, they grab everything. But I, something about the way that was handled, I think a lot of people, you know, they kind of looked at Comey a little funny afterwards. And I think he's going to be especially careful now with the way he presents information. I'm curious to see what he has to say because I, I, I don't think he's – there aren't going to be any real alternative facts there. I think if yeah. he says something, it's going to be like a very solid <laughs> – Do you think we'll thing. find out anything new? Have we found out anything yet? (laughs) I think he might might reiterate things we've been hearing. He might give Mm -hmm. credibility to certain assertions that have been made recently, certain things that are out there. He might discredit or credit things, I think. I don't, you know, we learn something new every day now. Yeah, (laughs) it is true. That is very true. Let's look at a different side of Trump and the reaction to a photo that's gone viral where comedian Kathy Griffin has what uh, you know I would consider an effigy, but what is what many would say a likeness of uh, President Donald Trump, his bloodied, severed head. The backlash has been swift and arguably very strong. Uh, what are your thoughts about first how people have reacted to this image? It, it seems kind of disproportional, like yeah. uh, disproportionate. We've we've seen this kind of thing before, you know. Uh, we're, we'll talk about it a lot. The uh, comparisons to images, horrible images uh, of Barack Obama, and that was tied with uh, race issues that we're not seeing in the same way here. Mm-hmm. But to me, also, like it's it's such a uh, it's it's such a representation of corporate media of how how uh how corporate and um uh sanitary media has become you can't behave a certain way and be free speech and get the same kind of uh high profile job in media so it's in the fallout you know one of the big things is that she lost her contract to host the new york new year's eve special on cnn and it was interesting reading the coverage that CNN made a big to-do about talking about how she was fired from CNN. And it was just very, like, meta and odd to see your CNN reporting, like, extensively on the fact that they fired Kathy Griffin. It was almost as if they knew that would get clicks, but I don't want to speculate there. I do want to know, what does, what do you think gender has to play in the reaction? Um, what, mm. what about you, Deanna? What do you think? That That's actually not something I've given a lot of thought to, mm-hmm. but... Um, now that you bring it up, I'm, <laughs> it's, it seems to me like women are punished for saying something controversial or showing something that could be s- said as um, done in poor taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very surprised to see like the CNN alerts on my phone that <laughs> she was fired from CNN. It was right. really weird. <laughs> it was very weird. Yeah. Um, do you think that there, you know, now she made an apology and, and kind of some people are thinking that she shouldn't have apologized. 
um, because it kind of takes away from the statement that she was making. Um, what are your thoughts about the discussion on whether this is art versus, you know, a statement or, you know, what about that debate? Um, well, I, you know, here's my feeling on this is um, if you know anything about Kathy Griffin and her humor, um, it, she made a joke in poor taste, very poor taste. But that's kind of what she does. Her humor is a little tacky. I mean, I was not shocked that it was. I, I didn't find it shocking that Kathy Griffin did something like this because it's kind of like in line with her humor and her her M.O. and her approach to everything, to what she does. Um, I was a little surprised that she backed down as quickly as she did. Um, I, uh, it, that, that surprised me. Um, I, you know, it's interesting um, that the whole gender issue would, there have been such a public, I, I mean, that's much her, I, did, did we come down more harshly on her because she was a woman presenting this image? Also, this whole thing, like everyone's talking about, you know, CNN announced that they fired her. That isn't too typical. Would they have done that with, you know, if it was a man that had done that? I mean, we hear about what happened with Bill O'Reilly, and that, that that only made the news because, you know, there was this huge scandal around it. But, I mean— Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just, really atypical as far as—I you know, I mean, maybe I'm, I'm, I don't see everything. So, But it seems atypical for a news organization to really heavily comment on their own yeah, it's, dealings it's, yeah, it's, and outside of a press own, release, yeah. you know. And that it seems very it seems very odd. I I'm kind of along the same you know vein of it's Kathy Griffin and you know I was the person that when I saw these images of of nooses around you know former President Obama's neck I was outraged. I was on Twitter and Facebook like this is preposterous. All of these things. So like I get it and I'm on the other side where it's Trump and I'm like yeah. So I <laughs> I understand my own hypocrisy and I think that's what a lot of people are feeling. It's just like well we don't agree. And this is a manifestation in one way that she doesn't agree. And I don't necessarily want to say that, you know, she's not entitled to that. But it is a slippery slope, you know. And if you have to accept it on one side, you need to accept it on the other. And then looking again at that racial lens that we were talking about, it is different to, you know, hold a white man's head in effigy um, than to have a noose around a black man's neck. Like, yeah, those are just yeah. different images. Yeah, they the, conjure different there, things. There isn't the historical context with what Kraft, exactly. Kathy Griffin did with that image than there is with, like, the, like the lynching references. There's the, They're, they're kind of a little apples and oranges, in yeah. my opinion, because they're just the historical context. I was like, yeah, was she making a statement? Probably, but she was doing it in the way she does everything. Not in, in high, yeah. you know, standard taste. I mean, but that's, that's her, so. Well, and I, I think uh, the bigger question, too, about, what does this mean about dissent against public figures? What does this mean about dissent against the government? Are we entering even more strong censorship on things that we would consider, you know, under the guise of free speech? And now we, we understand that free speech is about, you know, protection from certain prosecutions. And it's not this idea of like, you don't get backlash for things you say, but you know, are we entering a time where, you know, you can't challenge the president in maybe a, you know, striking or an offensive way to make a point? Is is that where we are? And do we want to be there? I don't think we want to be there. That's yeah. just really dangerous. And we've seen what's happened in other countries recently when <laughs> people have shown up against presidents or other mm -hmm. public figures. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's interesting because... Trump doesn't necessarily, <laughs> um, he he's going to use his free speech no matter what. 
So I think it's interesting that um, he's shutting other people down. Yeah, yeah I mean, free speech also, are f it's, it's, we should maybe clarify, also, we forget what free speech actually is. It's, it's our right to speak out against the government. Right, it's exactly it's that. It's not our right to, say, harass people via Twitter and name right. call. Yeah. There's a difference, and, and I don't know if... The, um, 45 realizes that yeah. <laughs> there is. I've known people personally. It's like, no, 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 you don't have a right to name call in public. Right. That's not somebody. protected. Um, but, you know, hopefully people are able to let things go. They're not so thin skinned that like they go back and forth. But it has a right. And I, I think there are right or 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 are to criticize the government and our freedom from fear, from persecution for criticizing the government. That's that's been um, dampened since the Patriot Act, I, I think, yeah. um, because with that, all of a sudden it was like, oh, you better be careful what you say because they can, you know, pe people are watching. And it, it's I, I noticed a shift then where it became much more of a we better put on a big public face of supporting the government. Yeah. You know, it's well, I mean, we are in the age of heightened surveillance. You know, everything is monitored. We all carry around tracking devices, essentially disguised as mobile phones. So it's you know, we are in a period of time where you have to be more vigilant about what you say in public spheres. You know, we're, we're doing this show and we're talking about the president. So I think it's, it is a time where, you know, things, people are looking, we have the internet, so things are more visible. And I think because of that visibility, there's more scrutiny. You know, there wasn't necessarily the amount of scrutiny before because we couldn't see everything that was said. We didn't have a record of all of the tweets. We didn't have a record of all of the, you know, the statements. We can hold more accountable and people's words are more held accountable. So I, I think that 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 represents this. But I don't, you know, I, I haven't come down on either side of whether or not I think Kathy Griffin, you know, I feel like CNN had to make a decision that they, is in their best business interest mm -hmm. because they're a business. And, Fair enough. <laughs> you know, that is that is what it is. What it says about CNN, what it says about Kathy Griffin or the state of our democracy is, I guess, yet to be determined. So I want to switch gears to a little local topic, not a little local topic, but kind of a big local topic. So we are starting in the midst of a mayoral election and there are many candidates and one candidate's actually kind of sticking out because he's very young. He's a millennial candidate from Crown Heights. And I'm curious to know, um, as we start to think about who our next mayor is going to be and whether or not it's going to be Bill de Blasio as, you know, the incumbent or if we're going to elect somebody new, you know, do we think, first of all, I guess the big question is, should we stay with de Blasio or should we go? What are your thoughts, you know, this early in kind of the discussion about the next mayor? Anybody want to go on a record yet? <laughs> I want to know what the options are. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm not ready to make a decision. Let me see my options. <laughs> um, and apparently we might have a new one with this new candidate out of Crown Heights. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about him. He's self-identifying as progressive. I don't know. I mean, that's progressive has been it. it there are certain characteristics, um, policy uh, attitudes towards policy that make one a progressive candidate. I But it's become a bit of a buzzword. And there are people who claim to be progressive, but they're not really. It's OK if you're not a progressive. But just don't say you are. It's kind of like don't use it as a selling point. So I don't know if he is or not. I, I don't know too much about him. He's young. A great breath of not. He's not a kid. He's what's he? Twenty eight. Twenty eight. Yeah. So breath of fresh air. But you know, I, I would to be mayor of New York City at that age, you gotta be kind of badass. I mean, I mean no, really, you have so, to be yeah. not a. And it, it's tough because there's a lot of. 
Um, I don't know if he has a lot of political capital. Uh, mm. I think maybe part of why uh, de Blasio has been kind of disappointing for some people. He he probably didn't have the doesn't have the political capital of gotten cert, made certain accomplishments that he w- wanted to meet. Mm-hmm. You know, made a lot of promises, and it's not been terrible. But it's like it's people look at him like he's kind of meh. And I don't know if it's just he he keeps hitting walls. I'm curious about this new guy. I'd I'd love to see him run just to mix things up. Um, but I don't know. I'd like to know more about him. Yeah. Well, and I think it's you know we a lot of people are, that follow the city politics like there's there are things that are going well. There are things that are going not so well. And I think you know if you look at New York City being this large mammoth of a entity with its 85 billion dollar budget and its infrastructure that rivals many small countries. You know, it's an animal to run. And, you know, as much as I would love new, fresh ideas, you also have to look at the mechanics of actually running the city and can you get it done? And if a seasoned politico like Bill de Blasio has trouble making the deals to get it done, can somebody from outside of the political scene even have a chance? I'm not sure that he will. Like, I I don't know much about him at this point, but um, I do think... Uh, New York politics do need some fresh voices, but I think that it might be (laughs) easier for him to get in on the ground floor. So, like, become a city council member first instead of just going straight. And learn the the ways of how the city works. Yeah, and kind of get involved and and get the capital you need, you know, both your your kind of brand capital, but also your financial capital um, to actually make a go at it. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot. Uh, most candidates for mayor have worked in the public realm in some way, shape, or form. Um, even Giuliani was a U.S. attorney, um, unless Bloomberg, but Bloomberg had millions of millions of dollars. Yes. Um, he had a good reputation for himself business-wise. He seemed, most people found him pretty likable. I think after having a personality as antagon- antagonistic as Giuliani, people were like, oh, he's pretty chill. He can, he, But he had that financial capital that you just most people don't have and so he achieved success that way but most you know you, you sit on go, city council you know public advocate something first i don't know what else he's he's done I, we don't know too much about this guy yeah so that's one of the things that we're going to do on this show is we're going to find out more about this guy and some of the other people that are running for office in the city and try to bring some different perspectives and voices to the conversation about the city elections. And we also want to know what you think, what you think about the elections and generally the topics that we talk about on this show. So you can send us your comments to objection at radiofreebrooklyn.org. You can find us on Facebook and you can find us on Twitter. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and talk about our big issue, which is President Trump withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord. That's going to be interesting discussion. So join us back here on Objection to the rule in just a moment, right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. In just a moment, once I pull up our music. They used to be lost. 
oil wasted on the oceans and upon our seas, fish full of mercury. Underground and in the sky Animals and birds who live nearby Father's lives mercy, mercy, me All things and what they Used to be What about this overcrowded land How much more do you from mercy Can't you stand to the rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was Mercy, Mercy Me by Marvin Gaye. I actually didn't know that song was about like, like it's called The Ecology. I didn't know that. I didn't know the history of that song. It was on his <laughs> protest album that was about it was the same album that What's Going On was on and stuff like mm. that. I know that track. So welcome back to our show. We're going to continue the conversation talking about the decision that was announced this Thursday where President Trump announced that he would begin the process to withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Accord, claiming that the environmental standards hurt American businesses. Only two other countries don't participate in that accord, Nicaragua and Syria. And it was signed in 2015, and the countries pledged to adopt green energy sources, cut down on climate change and emissions, and that limit the rise of global temperatures. Now, he made an address from the Rose Garden announcing this decision we're going to hear it and then we're going to talk about what we think about the decision and what it means for not only our um, climate change but also our you know placement in the world stage here is that announcement from president trump to fulfill my solemn duty to protect america and its citizens the united states will withdraw from the paris Climate Accord Thank you
Thank you. But begin negotiations to re-enter either the Paris Accord or in really entirely new transaction on terms that are fair to the United States, its businesses, its workers, its people, its taxpayers. So we're getting out, but we will start to negotiate and we will see if we can make a deal that's fair. And if we can, that's great. And if we can't, that's fine. As President, I can put no other consideration before the well-being of American citizens. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers, who I love, and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished economic production. Thus, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. This includes ending the implementation of the nationally determined contribution and, very importantly, the Green Climate Fund, which is costing the United States a vast fortune. Compliance with the terms of the Paris Accord and the onerous energy restrictions that is placed on the United States could cost America as much as 2.7 million lost jobs by 2025, according to the National Economic Research Associates. This includes 440,000 fewer manufacturing jobs, not what we need. Believe me, this is not what we need, including automobile jobs and the further decimation of vital American industries on which countless communities rely. They rely for so much, and we would be giving them so little. According to the same study, by 2040, compliance with the commitments put into place by the previous administration would cut production for the following sectors. Paper, down 12%. Cement, down 23%. Iron and steel, down 38%. Coal, and I happen to love the coal miners, down 86%. Natural gas, down 31%. The cost to the economy at this time would be close to $3 trillion in lost GDP, and six and a half million industrial jobs, while households would have $7,000 less income, and in many cases, much worse than that. 
Not only does this deal subject our citizens to harsh economic restrictions, it fails to live up to our environmental ideals. As someone who cares deeply about the environment, which I do, I cannot in good conscience support a deal that punishes the United States, which is what it does. The world's leader in environmental protection, while imposing no meaningful obligations on the world's leading polluters. All right, you just heard from President Trump from the Rose Garden from last Thursday when he announced our exit from the Paris Climate Accords. So there's a lot there. Um, mm -hmm. On Democracy Now!, um, Amy Goodman collected a panel of experts to break down the decision. One of those experts, Penn State professor Michael Mann, said the decision paints the United States as an international outlaw and that Trump got the numbers wrong on both the effect on warming and the jobs. Um, the effect on warning was actually, he was off by a factor of 10, and the jobs that are created by renewable energy are outpacing those that are lost by coal. And that's been reported many, many times. So I'm curious to know, what are your, what are your thoughts on the decision and some of the effects that have been discussed in the media of this choice to pull out? My initial thoughts is I don't think that it's a good idea to pull out. I mean, I understand that um, the accord was not something that, like, um, no one's going to, like, check America if we didn't do yes, it. Yes, it's a, it's a non-binding <laughs> so, agreement, like, so we yeah. can participate in, you know, yes, um, exactly. But I, I do think that it was important for us to have that goal, um, and I don't understand how Trump can say that he cares about the environment and pulls out of something like this. Like, it doesn't make sense. But he says he cares about a lot of things that he has shown that he doesn't yeah, actually care about. It's like he about. said he cared about LGBT Americans <laughs> and then completely ignored exactly. Pride Month. So it's it's like, what are the actions versus the words? And I'm, you know, I'm really wondering, because there's the discussion about whether the Accord actually could do what it set out to do and whether countries were paying enough into it and the burden, you know, the financial burden on the United States was a great one. But at the same time, we are a big contributor to some of the factors that are causing our ecological issues, you know, with our overconsumption. Um, what are the thoughts about the idea that, you know, no matter what kind of these, you know, these actions do regarding climate change, we're still going to be at a fault because of our consumption, you know, our, our consumption of oil, our consumption of food and agriculture, you know, our consumption of meat, for instance, you know, how does that play in? And, you know, what are your thoughts on that? We, we we need to check ourselves. Yeah. Um, but um, I, it doesn't help us to do that. Like that's a cultural checking. That's something mm -hmm. personally. It's bigger than. But but it doesn't help when the president pulls out of something like this. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, my understanding is that part of why this we had these international meetings about the climate and the environment is because there was a recognition that. It, it was bigger than just any one nation. Everybody, like the yeah. whole planet had to come together and that's why everybody, you know, and, and if a lot of um, 
you know, dominant countries in the West come together and on the same page about something and have a unified front, maybe a nation like China, for example, might start to bug, okay, we need to clean up yeah, our Yeah, who area. has said that and they that would step kind of up to point. fill the gap? Yeah. yeah, and look, they stepped up. But I think that was part of how this, the, the part, I think that was part of my, I understand correctly, part of the function of these accords was actually to kind of get other smaller nations or resistant nations on board. Like, let's get on board on the same plate. Um but yeah, we have to change. I don't think it helps when he he makes this kind of the, the symbolism and the gestures. Like, we, yeah. Although, and I'm hopeful this resistance to Trump via states saying, okay, well then we'll individually at the yeah. state levels regulate in accordance with the accords. Maybe this is that will function as that wake up call and looking at our in our consumption and. I mean, we've been talking about getting lessing dependence on fossil fuels for a long time. Right. And what what happened there? Like all of a sudden, then we get we pipelines running. Like I don't I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't get it. Yeah, we have big <laughs> oil pipelines running through the, the right. nation. Yeah. So yeah, that's a, that's an interesting point. It's like where do our actual priorities lie? Is it with the, you know, the financial, which you know would represent that pipeline, or is it with the actual trying to reduce the harm that we're doing to the environment? Um, I'm curious to know. What does this mean for our image in the world stage? You know, the world reaction was very negative. You know, the cover of Der Spiegel, uh, which is a German newspaper, basically like has Trump like going eating the world. Like, I mean, it, it, the 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 pushback, you know, just like the pushback to the immigration um, executive order, has been very negative in the world stage. What does this mean for our, you know, not to be all image conscious, but we're taking hits. Left and right, what do you think about just how this positions us, um, you know, as these um, in in the world stage? So I saw an interesting piece on Slate uh, about this, that arguing that uh, in some ways maybe the world is better off with America openly backing out just because America's behind closed doors backing out of a lot of agreements and has been for a long time before yeah. Trump was in office. You mm -hmm. know, so that's the, the argument by, uh, um, by people on the left, like maybe better to have Trump who's honest about how he's, uh, he's going to do everything in his power to avoid progressive issues or to go against them than to have someone uh, on the progressive side who's going to say one thing and do the other thing. So and that's a really good point uh, to think about. We could have, I mean, there have been things, this was signed under President Obama, and, and there have been other agreements um, that we have kind of balked on, or we've designed them so that we bear less of the brunt of the damage, and they've been very self-serving. Um, so again, maybe it is an opportunity to have somebody look at it differently. I don't know how optimistic people are about that, but it is, it is a possibility. Um, is there a chance that, you know, this is just all like for show and this actually will not materialize? It's the wait and see thing with Trump. Yeah. Right? Is he really going to do anything? But, you know, he has. He's slowly been pushing through everything he said he's trying to do. That's so. that. And that's the, if that's the scary part of it. Yeah. It is. He's, you know, and he said that earlier in the address. Um, the first couple of minutes of that speech from the Rose Garden was him talking about all the things that. He did that were great that he said he would do for the American people. Um, so, you know, he might have this as another check of one of those things that he said he was going to do and that he did. And, you know, for better or for worse, you know, 
you can do things, what does it mean? I am concerned about the damage that could be done until the midterm elections, because, you know, part of why he's pulling off some of this is he's got this Congress that supports him. Barely, you know, barely. But, um, no, it's, it is a big part of it, like, how, because the environment for is, I think, a good example. It's it's already in the state that it's in. Um, you deregulate enough in two years, how, you know, how much more? How many more serious storms that hit major cities are going to happen? Um, how many? More, how much more flooding? We are coming up on storm season, yeah. and there's no head of FEMA. That's the other. Oh <laughs> yeah, like, you know huh. that's one of those. Like and I read this story the other day, and I thought, well, I'm not surprised he hasn't. We we know he hasn't fulfilled major positions in, in government at the federal level, and that's been an ongoing thing. But it's kind of like people are like, you know, under the heading of climate. We are coming up on storm season. This is going to happen. It's always going to happen. But there's no one. What, inevitably, there will be a flood somewhere in certain regions of the U.S. And there's no one like there's no go to person for that. It's not just that maybe the go. It's not like, you know, when Bush appointed, you know, Brownie, as he called him. And he really kind of botched Katrina and, and it, you know, but no, there's nobody. Yeah. <laughs> and when, you know, <laughs> that's the that's the I think there's a sense of urgency with climate, though. Yeah. With him, you know, any final thoughts? about the big issue. So it's something that we're going to have to watch, right? Because it's, you know, as these things develop and as, um, you know, more wrangling happens. And I feel like more pushback happens from the international community. I don't think this discussion is over. So we're definitely going to try to bring you more of it as it develops and maybe bring in some people to talk about it um, from a scientific perspective. Uh, before we take a break, I want to make sure to let you know about an upcoming event. Brooklyn Pride is coming this week from June 5th to June 10th, and Radio Free Brooklyn is a proud sponsor of the event. It is the 21st annual Brooklyn Pride, and the theme is no equality, no exceptions. There are races, a big festival in Park Slope, and the documentary release of the first openly trans FDNY firefighter, a queer comedy special, and a whole day of events on June 10th, so make sure to check it out. You can find out more information on www.brooklynpride.org. Radio Free Brooklyn will also be broadcasting live from the event next Saturday from 12 to 2, so you can check out my other show on Saturday, Queer State of Mind, for that. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to talk with uh, reporter Deanna Anderson about her story in Flatbush and get some perspective on how that neighborhood is changing. So we'll be right back on Objection to the Rule in just a few moments.
Man is on the menu in my favorite restaurant. Well, don't talk about quantity, cause there's no fish left in the sea. Greet a man, Ben Callan, of the laughter rappers. And you better play in nature's way, or she won't take it all away. And don't try and tell me you know my Ben, her bad rap wrong. Oh, you've upset the balance, man. Done the only thing you can. Now my life is in your hands. To Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. So we're going to continue our conversations and go a little bit local. We are joined by a fabulous reporter who is giving us some insight on some development in Flatbush, Brooklyn. So, Deanna, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, yes. So tell us a little bit about what you do right now. Uh, So right now I am covering equitable economic development in New York for a publication called Next City. Um, and Next City covers economic, social, and environmental change in cities across the United States. Yes, I also have to shout out that Deanna is also a fellow graduate of the King yes. School of Journalism. So, yeah, yes. shout out to King School. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Anyway, so, sorry, I had to get that in there as a proud alumnus. Anyway, um, so Flatbush is an interesting neighborhood. It's a neighborhood I live in. It's located in central Brooklyn, in case you don't know. And it has a heavy population of different Caribbean cultures kind of inter- mixed into one area. I'm curious to know, talk to me about the neighborhood, about the specific market that you featured in the story and those dynamics. Yes, yeah, so the Flatbush Caton market was started in 2000 um, as an outdoor market in Flatbush at the intersection of Flatbush and Caton Avenues. Um, and it was started because there were a lot of Caribbean vendors who didn't exactly have a stable place to sell their things. So uh, former councilwoman Una Clark decided to um, 
start the market and then in 2002 it actually became a building um, and now there are about 40 vendors now all of them work every day in the market because they've been having they've been having trouble with foot traffic there yeah um, recently so they like kind of um, space out when they actually sell their items there so it seems you know I live pretty much right around the corner from it. And, and there's a place that people walk by all the time, but you don't necessarily stop. And when you're looking outside, it kind of looks like this interestingly colored big building and you see things from the outside. But, you know, a lot of people, especially if you're new to the neighborhood, you might not jump in and go in and look around. Kind of what are the things that you find there when you're in the market? Um, so there are a lot of people who sell uh, food items. They sell shea butter and other like personal items yeah. they there's a woman there who runs a tea house and she also does catering there nice. um and there's someone who sells uh cds and he also controls the music that you hear outside as you're walking past the market okay yeah. so this market is kind of at the center of some neighborhood change and it's going to be renovated and they're going to add mixed-use apartments and kind of an affordable housing deal um, that's a part of a bigger initiative across the city. Talk to me about that change and what it means for the area and for the people that are in the market itself. Okay, so yes, this is a part of de Blasio's plan to uh, bring in more affordable housing into the city and preserve uh, affordable housing. Um, so this site is being changed from just the market um, to a mixed-use space. And so during construction, the vendors will be moved about a mile away maybe a little under a mile away, um, where they'll still be able to sell their goods, and then they'll be moved back into the market once it is reopened in 2020. Um, so in addition to the market, there will also be an incubator and business development space there for local um, entrepreneurs, and there will be about 250 affordable housing units, which will be, some will be <laughs> affordable for moderate income people, and yeah, it's, the whole affordable I love the, the housing affordable, thing We could is... spend a whole show <laughs> yeah. or series of shows yeah. on affordable housing and what that means. Exactly. Um, and so the vendors, some of them are excited about it. Some of them don't really know what is going to happen. They're not sure how to feel about it. Well, and, you know, talking to that feeling of not being so sure, you know, this is a part of a bigger discussion about neighborhood change and how Flatbush is one of those neighborhoods that is undergoing you know, those, the, the G word that we'll talk about so many times, but it is mm -hmm. undergoing that neighborhood shift, that gentrification where newer residents are coming in, more affluent residents, um, and are taking over real estate that's been rehabilitated. The businesses are shifting and churning over. So older, you know, mom and pop shops are changing and newer businesses are coming in, not necessarily box businesses, but newer, you know, businesses for a newer community. Um, how have the residents, how are the people that are a part of that market work to preserve the future of the market for the residents of Flatbush? Um, so they've actually been working with one of the partners in the development um, from an urbane development is what the mm -hmm. business is called. They've been basically talking to him about what they want to keep in the market. And um, th the developers have also been meeting with the community, um, like one of the block associations, and the CACI, which is the Caribbean American Chamber in Industry. Um, mm -hmm. So they also they actually manage the market now, and they're trying to make sure that the vendors who have been there since like 2000 are 
able to stay there and pay comparable rents to today. And they have the developers have gotten pushback though, yeah. which is to come with all development. <laughs> Absolutely. What are you know? What is the community feeling? You talked about kind of the mixed feelings. What are some of the perspectives of this change in the community that you've seen? Um, some people are not welcome of the change because of the affordable housing aspect in particular, um, because not everyone who lives in the community will be able to afford those rents, even though they are deemed affordable. Mm -hmm. um, and though there's not housing in this area right now, in this, uh, this particular site, um, people are still afraid of displacement because the new building will bring about a different feel than what is currently yeah. there. And it might bring about people who are not currently in the neighborhood because mm -hmm. they will be able to afford those rents. Absolutely. And then you think about that residual effect, right? You have this building full of people that are not, you know, necessarily native to the neighborhood or don't understand the neighborhood culture coming in and, and kind of integrating themselves into the culture. And it can either be, you know, kind of blending and or it can be kind of obtrusive and overwhelming. Um, what do you think the future holds? How long is this process going to take of redevelopment? When you know, do we have an understanding of the time frame? And then, what do you think? You know, what do you think it will do for the community? I'm hoping it does great things for the community, especially the vendors who are like in their 70s and are just trying to make it in Flatbush. Um, so the vendors will be moved in the fall, and then the uh, current site will be. Uh, demolished mm -hmm. and they will start on constru construction in 2018 and then it should be done in 2020 and from there all the vendors will be moved back and people will be able to apply for their affordable housing and um and is that going to be the normal lottery process that we use in new york city for affordable housing i'd imagine you know that is a great question yeah. i don't want to well, misspeak about yeah. that but i'm pretty sure it is going to be a similar situation um, I'm curious to know, since you're you're covering cities um, and covering change in cities, um, what are some of the things that you've noticed as you've interacted and reported in Flatbush about the perspectives of the changes that are happening, not necessarily in the context of just this market, but the, na the neighborhood changes in general? Okay, so I actually live in Fl Flatbush as well. I've mm. been there for two years, and in the two years that I've been there, I've seen a lot of change. Yeah. Um, and I have reported on... Uh, the anti-gentrification movement in Flatbush in particular, and someone that I spoke to uh, was very resistant to like the new businesses that are coming into the area. And um, one of the things I remember him saying is like, we don't need another mayonnaise shop in this neighborhood mm -hmm. because like that's something that they don't need there. They need laundry mats. They need things that they um, can afford mm -hmm. and that are like, that they will buy. Um, so I think a lot of people are resistant to the change, but it's kind of inevitable. It's yeah. gonna keep changing. It's always been interesting because I have, you know, being in the neighborhood as well, you see more and more, you know, definitely you can tell people that have been around the neighborhood for years, their families have grown up in the neighborhood, they have that kind of cultural tie to the neighborhood, but then, there are those, you know, that are coming in that are newer. And it, it's just interesting to see the different dynamics of how people interact. And Flatbush is a place now that you can really study how those different, you know, some places I think about businesses like, you know, like Zerly or like some of those businesses that are on mm -hmm. Flatbush that have kind of 
rehash how they do it and cater to you know the new and the old and it, it's kind of a, it's an interesting environment so I, I appreciate you coming in and sharing the story and and hopefully you'll share more stories with us as you do your reporting yes. in the area Thank you. so we have a couple of minutes left and i wanted to bring up this very interesting topic that uh is a part of the discussion about the legalization of marijuana um, specifically medical marijuana here in new york state and there's a legislator right now that is trying to expand the access to legalized med medicinal marijuana for menstrual cramps. And I'm curious to know, I do not suffer from this affliction, but I do have people <laughs> in the studio that do suffer from this affliction. <laughs> um, but I do believe in you know legalization. I'm curious to know, what are your thoughts on this? And you know what are your thoughts on overall like legalization in New York State? It's something that's been debated as many states are going the route of either full legalization. We have a very re restricted medical allowance for certain conditions under certain regulations. So give me your perspective. Um, I, I actually researched our, our laws in the state uh, as part of a story I was writing for um, the Shadow Press. It's actually still in progress. Um, they are, it's very complicated. It's not just that um, we have very little time left. How do I do a very rich version? <laughs> it's not just that you can't smoke it. If it's and it's not just that there are only three locations in all of New York City, and that you know it kind of encourages corporate farming. You have to, it, it, you have to pick one from column A and one from column B. You can't just say be going through chemo. You have to have a certain diagnosis and a certain condition associated with the diagnosis. So there's a, it's really hard to get. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious what how they're going to work within those laws for things like menstrual cramps. Is are they going to? I, I personally, um, I think. Uh, yeah, depending on the strain, um, it can be very helpful, and not only just for cramps, but other symptoms, um, things women can experience during menstruation. Um, a lot of the headaches, the, the you name it, because and we we know medically that marijuana's been shown to medically ha help with specific things. Medic marijuana from pain relief is something that we really need to look into. It doesn't work like opioid painkillers. It. Mm -hmm distance it you know it's it's but it's something that um it, because it, it's not designed to kind of knock out pain it kind of distances yourself it puts distance between you and your pain which can leave you more functional and i do know that um you know menstrual cramps are, are something that uh, affect productivity if you're you know they're if you're you know, when you look at, um, you know, causes of when we, we want to talk about the economy and jobs, like what leads people to take more sick days, actually, and they found like for a lot of women, yeah, you, lo you lose a day a month, <laughs> you know, at least out of this. I don't know what your thoughts are. I'm, I'm in favor of it. I'm curious how they're actually going to like make it work with the existing laws, though. Thank you for your insight on the laws, because <laughs> I had no idea about that. Um, I know women now who uh, use <laughs> weed for during their time of the month. Um, so I think it will be helpful for a lot of women. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm curious to follow this conversation more, so we should dig more <laughs> into it. And on all the topics that we've had on this first edition of Objection to the Rule, thank you so much. Thanks.